I remember the voice of my sister, and my sister says to me on numerous occasions, she, occasions she said to me, you know, my dear brother, I really love you dearly, but I'll never cook your recipes because I am a working woman, I've got three kids, I just don't have the time to, to cook. And I always kind of shrugged it off as like, you know, I, send a lot, I sell a lot of cookbooks, people do buy my books and cook from them, but I think there is this perception uh, that it's complicated, and we want. I really wanted to make sure that it's uh, within. I didn't. I don't think it's wholly justified because I think within what I've published there is a lot of very simple recipes. I guess the average is not that simple. Uh, I really wanted a book for, that people could cook from, like my sister and and others that feel that not every time they walk into the kitchen and want to cook an Ottolenghi recipe, they have to do uh, extensive shopping and a lot of washing up. So. Uh, the idea was to simplify things, but in a true-to-fashion Ottolenghi way, we couldn't really, simple couldn't be simple. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast, sponsored by Pantera Press. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading, and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. My name is Greg Dobbs. Today I'm joined by chef, restaurateur and food writer Yotam Otalengi talking about his new book, Simple. Yotam, welcome. Thank you, Greg. When I first heard that Otalengi was putting out a book called Simple, I looked up from my pile of dirty pots, pans and bowls, <laughs> closed the door on the cupboard groaning with Middle Eastern spices and said, yeah, right. What do you call simple? Um, so you're not the only one to raise an eyebrow or two or three uh, about the Ottolenghi simple uh, contradiction in terms. But um, so like you suggest, it probably is a case of um, people thinking, oh, how is it going to do simple? Because the whole essence of Ottolenghi cooking is about that complexity of flavor and layering with spices and processes. And you often actually apologize for the number of pots and pans required in a recipe. <laughs> I have apologized on a number of occasions, but for many things, not that, that that's, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm quite a good apologizer. But um, in actual fact, I think what was, uh, what happened was that um, a few years ago, the Guardian newspaper asked me to come up with a supplement for the um, for the one of the seasons. I think it was spring, uh, of with twenty easy or simple recipes. And I remember getting the brief and saying to one of my colleagues, "Say, actually, I'm not doing that. <laughs> that's not Ottolenghi. You know, <laughs> that's just not my USP." And um, but we embraced it and we sat down and within twenty minutes we had like twenty brilliant ideas for things that you could do. And I remember the voice of my sister, and my sister says to me on, on numerous occasions, she, occasions, she said to me, you know, my dear brother, I really love you dearly, but I'll never cook your recipes because I am a working woman, I've got three kids, I just don't have the time to, to cook. And I always kind of shrugged it off as like, you know, I, send a lot, I sell a lot of cookbooks, people do buy my books and cook from them, but I think there is this perception uh, that it's complicated, and we want, I really wanted to make sure that it's uh, within... I, didn't, I don't think it's wholly justified because I think within what I've published there is a lot of very simple recipes. I guess the average is not that simple. Uh, I really wanted a book for, that people could cook from, like my sister and, and others, that feel that not every time they walk into the kitchen and want to cook an Ottolenghi recipe, they have to do 
uh, extensive shopping and a lot of washing up. So uh, the idea was to simplify things. But in a true to fashion Ottolenghi way, we couldn't really, simple couldn't be simple. Your style of cooking is, by its very nature, sort of complex and layered. So yeah. it's very difficult in a way to, to simplify that. It was easier than I thought it would be. So um, the, one of the things that this book is a set of ingredients at the very back this of is the, ten the, the 10 ingredients, yes. which was excruciatingly difficult to bring it down from 150 well, to 10. On that point, <laughs> I, like just browsing, I saw at least one recipe with 11 ingredients, but yeah. let that slide. <laughs> no, I didn't say that every recipe in the book will have 10 ingredients or less. Some of the recipes in the book have 10 ingredients or less, but there is 10 ingredients that I asked the, 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 the users of the book uh, to kind of sign a contract before they start using the book and go and get those 10 ingredients. Not really, just, you know, I, I'm joking. They don't really have to get those ingredients, but it is useful if they, you go and buy five or six or seven of those ingredients because it takes you quite a long way without having to go to your local Middle Eastern grocer. And things that I've spoken about in the past, you know, then there's not anything very new there, like things like za'atar or ground cardamom or pomegranate molasses or a good tahini. Um, or a preserved lemon. And I say, well, once you've got those or a, a fraction of those, you really could cook quite easily with this book and produce meals within 45 minutes to an hour. But the concept of simple, I think, is really interesting because what, what we did is we took the word simple and broke it down into the six letter S, I, M, P, L, and E. And it, each one stands, stands for a different simple way of cooking. Because what's simple or easy for you is not necessarily what's simple or easy for me. And everybody has very different ideas of simplicity. So some people love to cook um, within um, half an hour. So that's the S, shortened time. Yep. Some people like to cook with few ingredients. So that's the I, ingredients, 10 or less. The M is a make-ahead. So every recipe that has an M next to it, it's a kind of recipe that if you host people, you can do all the preparation ahead of time. And when everybody arrives you miraculously arrive with everything <laughs> ready, I either needed to go into the oven or toss together. And this is one of the most useful categories for me because I, when I have people over, I've got two young kids, I really don't want to be cooking when, when there's kids around and guests around. I really want to have everything ready. That's one of the most difficult things about entertaining is you know, dividing your time between the kitchen and the dining room. And the room, dining room. I suppose. So that, yeah, that's it. And then the, the, the P stands for pantry. And those are the kind of dishes that you cook with rice or pasta or frozen peas or tin of uh, tin chickpeas or whatever it is that you're using. Uh, the L stands, stands for lazy. And those, <laughs> <laughs> those are the kind of recipes that you that don't probably really counts for most people. Well, yeah, well, it's not. A, you can be lazy, but you don't really need to be horrible to people. You yeah. can just be in a lazy state of mind. Yes, yes. <laughs> and those are uh, stews and roasts and things that you just put put together, have cooking for a good couple of hours, then you go read a good book or watch a film yeah. and come back and your dinner is sorted. And E is easier than you think. And I th that, again, talks about the state of mind of the cook. And... I think some people, when they see the word ice cream, they just move on move to on. the next play, page or, or bread or or confit, like a fancy French word. You know, they yes. go like, that's not for me, that's for chefs. <laughs> and thing, we're trying to bust that my myth with the ease. One thing that strikes me about the recipes is the way the titles almost fully explain the 
the essential ingredients for each recipe. Uh, uh, was that an intentional approach? Yeah, I think I, I tried to create as much clarity. So I wanted the book to deliver the, the promise of pl simplicity on so many levels because I really did expect that people like you would not believe that I'm capable of <laughs> producing a simple cookbook. So I, the idea is that the font is pretty big, the cover with a lemon, big lemon on it is bold and delivers a certain message, but then every recipe has a, a certain simple um, being to it and, and when you open it you know yeah those are the ingredients that I need this is the amount of time it's going to take and I can do it or move on to the next page and choose another recipe. It kind of eliminates the thinking process or the thought process oh yes I have those I can do it or no I don't have those. Absolutely I and you know and I, I, I think I've, I, I, I think it took me quite a while to understand but I think I finally got it and that people do bring a lot of anxiety into the kitchen so I, I, I for me cooking should be all about pleasure but I know that many people do bring anxiety with them and and I hear when I speak to people say oh you know I I stress and then the meal isn't quite right and so I, I try to kind of eliminate or minimize the level of anxiety that is required when someone cooks my food in this book so they can come in and really have a joyful experience as much as possible. There's still the Otto Lange signature ingredients for example you can't be without uh, good fresh herbs. Yeah, other herbs and tahini and yogurt and lemon and miso. I mean, there's a bunch of things that I use a lot. And you'd find even more of those in this book than in other books in a sense because if you're going to do something which is slightly less complicated or takes doesn't take quite as long time, you kind of compensate with ingredients that have a ton of flavor in them. So if you use some, something like feta or yogurt or tahini or anything that has, has a level of fermentation going on in it or anchovies then you are kind of injecting your your dish with a lot of flavor and saving yourself in creating that flavor as you cook this is why the 10 ingredients that i mentioned to you are so important because you could do very little and then add those and you get that kind of bonus flavor someone did the work for you and you'll get the flavor that's always a good way to go getting yeah. someone else to do the work for you <laughs> yeah um i have to bring my mother into this uh where is she? Well, she's at home. But uh, whenever I bring vegetables like kale or even eggplant into the kitchen, I always get this very suspicious look <laughs> as if I'm trying to kill her or something. What would you say in defence of these rather defenceless vegetables, So the, particularly the, the, kale? I, I think kale has, has suffered from <coughs> overexposure. And I think kale is as good as spinach <coughs> or, or chard. You know, it's not much better than those. But we've seen a lot of... We've been overindulging on on kale for quite a while. For uh, and the only reason we've done that is because it was popular for a little while. Uh, but kale is great. I mean, but it is a little bit dry, so you need to. There is a recipe here for kale with asparagus, and we kind of massage the kale mm -hmm. with oil and and asparagus and uh, and lemon. And it, by the time it breaks down, it's really really good. That, I mean, a massage would help anyone get in a good mood, I suppose. Exactly. That's what you just need a good massage before you go into the kitchen. <laughs> Everything <laughs> would taste good. But uh, you know, certain in ingredients are are suffering for that. But I think, actually, I want to sing uh, the uh, the. Um, a song of praise to ing uh, ingredients that are actually less f fashionable than kale and eggplant and uh, things like uh, like uh, turnip or swede or cauliflower or or celeriac, which are actually your mum would find maybe more reassuring. Yeah, they're old-fashioned vegetables, yeah, aren't they? But but the younger generation, people that use my books or even people that not don't. Uh, find maybe a bit boring and predictable but actually they are for me the kind of the new frontier because 
to create something really exciting from a cauliflower uh, maybe takes a bit more imagination. But actually, cauliflower has gone through the kale process yes, now, and it it's been very popular and trendy for a while. Uh, those are really, really, really good ingredients. Turnip, it sounds so dull, but it's got a really nice bitterness to it, a bit like rocket or arugula, I'm not sure what you use here, is a great you know, fancy ingredient people love for its bitterness. Actually, you get that in turnip. And if you make a beautiful gratin with some cream and olive oil and thyme and garlic uh, using turnip and maybe a bit of potato, you get real complexity with a vegetable that is kind of iffy for some people. It's really about how you dress them up. Yeah, it's how you dress them up. I don't think there's a bad vegetable. I think there's just how you do it, what you do with it. Well, that brings me to one of the recipes there. And you combine two of the possibly most despised vegetables on the planet. Uh, one I've mentioned before, kale, but broccoli and kale together <laughs> in fried broccoli and kale with garlic, cumin and lime. How do you approach creating a recipe from you know, such maligned vegetables? <laughs> um, so in my, in my world, they're not maligned. They're, they're very lo much loved. But I mean, I, I find that every recipe, um, every ingredient that I want to cook with poses a set of challenges and I think something like kale and, and like broccoli feels very green and very healthy and you want to make sure that those aspects are balanced or moderated with other things so one of the recipes that uh, one of the ways to do it is really is to use a flavored oil so you know which I use in many of my recipes and it's I have definitely not invented that technique but works very well with green vegetables where you take an oil and infuse it with a lot of other aromatics, things like hard herbs like sage or thyme or or even um, uh, kaffir lime leaves. And then you put some sliced garlic and fry the garlic in that oil. And then you can add something even like cinnamon and that. And then you take it all out and you have an oil that has absorbed a lot of those flavor. Once you put that over your, your broccoli or your kale or any other vegetables, you immediately give them both the, the fat that they need and those herbs and then when you throw them back in those herbs or, or aromatics they're crunchy uh, so you get texture so this is one technique but like char grilling is another one where smoke comes into the picture there's a lot of things you can do to make things that are um supposedly kind of you know you, you use a very extreme word malign but they're just a little <laughs> bit more challenging some people would say that <laughs> kale deserves not to be just charred but burnt altogether yeah well i don't i don't uh, see the point of that but i do think that kale is just a vegetable you know people feel very strongly about certain things it's only a vegetable that's right yes, <laughs> you it take it or leave it <laughs> <laughs> it shouldn't be accused of such crimes i suppose no in your list of 10 essential ingredients mm -hmm. one of those i think one of those is uh, harissa is is that yeah. the new essential ingredient yeah right. well harissa is really i mean every culture most cultures has a spice paste or a chili paste and harissa is the, is the, the, the chili paste of, of Tunisia or, or other parts of North Africa. And, you know, obviously you've got similar things going on in, in Malaysia or in Mexico and in, in many, many other countries that have a chili, particular chili paste. And I focused on this one because it's more and more available these days and it's got a bit of cumin and uh, we li I like a rose harissa where some rose petals are added in so you've got a bit of sweetness to balance that or rose or rose um, uh, syrup. Uh, but essentially it's another chili paste that works really well with food. And I think, again, like talking about shortcuts, if someone has dried chilies and then pounded them into a paste with some oil 
and some cumin, then they've done some of the work for you and then you don't need to take the cumin and you don't need to pound the chilies and just you take a spoonful of something which is delicious and you've just created something wonderful. I've got a recipe in this book that I really love. It's a, it's a pea, it's a pantry recipe, it's a pasta, uh, but with a kind of a North African twist. And it, um, it comes with um, harissa, uh, olives, capers, uh, it's a pappardelle, so it's a, it's a thick, it's a wide pasta sh- sheets um, and noodles. And it's really, really nice. And you can put it together in 20 minutes and you serve it with some yogurt and you've got a whole multi-layer delicious meal made out of pantry ingredients that are all full of flavor. Uh, you also seem to take fairly simple, uh, familiar comfort dishes, I suppose, and you apply a certain twist to them. Uh, for example, seeded chicken schnitzel. Yeah. Everyone knows a schnitzel or uh, uh, the gnocchi alla romana. Yeah. Well. Uh, it, that was something I'd never really thought about a different type of gnocchi, gnocchi. but this one is quite interesting yeah the gnocchi so gnocchi really is we are familiar with potato gnocchis mostly uh but gnocchi is a dumpling uh by the finish in in italian and uh, there's obviously everybody likes a potato gnocchi and i love mixing it with other uh, vegetables like a potato and celeriac or potato and sweet or turnip they just give you a bit of more interesting flavor within the gnocchi but one of the less known ver- varieties of Italian dumplings is called gnocchi alla romana. And my mom, my grandmother, st- sorry, uh, my, my dad's uh, mother, is she's from Rome. Uh, she's passed away, but she used to make these semolina dumplings. And essentially she cooked a pot of semolina with some nutmeg and, and milk and butter and cheese. And then set it as you set polenta. And then uh, cut it into circles or square and arrange it on a, on a tray and then sprinkle some more cheese on top and put it under the grill. So it's like a semolina gnocchi gratin. It's the, one of the most delicious things in the world. I can't really say how good it is. I'm, I'm uh, salivating right yeah, now. Yeah, you just need to think about melted cheese over set semolina dumplings and it's just the most delicious thing. And it took me a, wa- a long time to recreate it because I've always thought like I can't make it as good as my grandmother. And I couldn't, and I didn't. But I met a, a friend of mine, Ivo, uh, who is from southern Italy, from, from from Sicily, has taught me how to do it in a way that gets pretty close to the way my grandmother did it. And then it's, it's so good. And your food now actually appears in the movies, is that right? Bridget Jones's <laughs> baby recipe? Yeah. You I mean, despite my best effort, they just managed to get that that <laughs> that my, that name my name into that movie. It was It's a very funny story, actually. So... Um, last year or the year before that someone called me and said you know that your food is in Bridget Jones the latest installment I said no I didn't we didn't pay for that (laughs) and uh, apparently there's a scene in the film where um, Bridget Jones um, boyfriend brings her a delivery from Ottolenghi to cheer her up and in the bag of of takeaway uh, salads and and sweets there is a, a dish of salmon uh, with capers and, saf- and saffron and r- currants, and I remember someone calling me and saying, "Well, that is what he's he brings her for her d- for the dinner, the, the, their TV dinner." And I said, "That's not one of our dishes, actually. They made it up, <laughs> but they did bring in a, an Ottolenghi bag." So as soon as that has happened, I thought, well, "I've got to go and invent that dish." So it was the first time that a scene in the film has inspired a, an, an Ottolenghi <laughs> s- a dish, and that's the salmon. And I really absolutely love it. It's a, it's a simply grilled salmon with a salsa that has uh, capers, celery, saffron. And so we call it the Bridget Jones uh, salmon. And that actually happened in reverse. It happened in reverse, yeah. 
Um, although your food's predominantly Mediterranean, you're cooking sometimes strays, if I can use that word, into the cuisine of other places like yeah. Japan or Asia in general and the subcontinent. Um, what brings about for you that kind of borderless creativity or are there no borders for you? Um, there are no borders in the sense that I, I would never take a meal and think think it's not a good opportunity to hijack a recipe. You know, I've never eaten a meal without being inspired to create something, uh, a good meal. And I think that's that's I think the instinct of every chef uh, that every you know every time you put something in, in your mouth, it, it's it inspires a dish. That's especially myself that I I publish so many recipes on a, on a weekly basis that I really need to be inspired all the time. But there's more. There's cuisines that I gravitate towards more naturally than others, and I always look at it as a kind of a. So I was born and brought up in Jerusalem, which is kind of in the heart of the Middle East, and I see it as a kind of a concentric uh, expansion process. So um, I've traveled uh, both uh, physically and through books and magazines and people that I've met in to North North Africa, which was the next way of expanding, and further into east into. Uh, Turkey, Iran, and kind of the the Western Asia, and then um, India. It's just a short frontier. step. It's really, an ex- it? it's a short yeah. step, and then Southeast Asia, then Japan. But those steps are actually not only physically make sense; they also make sense in terms of the food philosophy of the regions. I mean, when I go, I find I find things that are uh, echo the, the food that I've grown up. I mean, I've talked to you about chili pastes. I've grown up with Yemeni chili pastes called hug green and 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 red because there's a lot of there was a lot there were many immigrants from Yemen in Jerusalem when I was growing up, but these are not so unlike the harissa paste of Tunisia, and the sambals of Malaysia. I mean, obviously there's fish sauce in Malaysia, and you'd or or there's some kind of fishy element, or uh, or ginger that you wouldn't find in the others. But essentially, those are the same thing. So, my travels are are not arbitrary, they're logical. They make sense. Like if I get the, my, my fix of garlic, my fix of cumin, my fix of c- citrus and chili, then I would go to a place and enjoy it. But you know, Japan is a whole different kettle of fish and many chefs be, in, enjoy Japanese food and ingredients because they're just so marvelous and you can make those connections. And we have tahini in the Middle East. Japanese also use a sesame paste. Yes. So, uh, so yeah, I, I do it. I don't do it randomly. I don't do this kind of inc- extreme fusion, but I do fuse things together when they make sense in the way that I described. Your food is so vibrant and fresh and colourful, and, and to me it speaks of uh, you know, glorious Mediterranean feasts and family banquets underneath shady fig trees. <laughs> is that the kind of environment you grew up in? Um, sometimes not so much. I mean, both my parents were, were they worked hard, so you know, there wasn't really a sense that we. It wasn't like a Tuscan villa scenario where we were outdoors the whole time. Those kind of outside outdoor abundant meals were actually take would would I would be exposed to them more in Palestinian kitchens and restaurants. We would go to the West Bank or East Jerusalem and have those kind of meze feasts that are type type of the Palestinian dining experience where you sit down and you get a whole load of salads. A bit like Lebanese cooking that you get so much of here in Australia. And so this is how I was exposed to that kind of the sense of generosity of a Middle Eastern feast. And that 
definitely stayed in my mind. So yeah. when I, I think with Sammy and I subconsciously, when we create our Sammy Tamimi, who's my co-author on a couple of books and partner in the business, when we create our Otolenghi display where there's kind of these kind of massive salad platters and foods that, that, are, that are clearly generous, we are inspired by the, the Middle Eastern ex, uh, either souk or market experience or the, the meze experience in the restaurant. I noticed that you also included a chapter on meal suggestions and feasts. Yeah. What brought you to that idea? It's a very practical thing, but as talking about the usability of the books, of the book in general, like often people are not sure what to, how to make a, a meal. So they like a certain recipe, but they're not quite sure how to create a feast. And even I, as a, as a seasoned you know, cook and recipe writer, when I see a recipe in a book, I always ask myself, what would that go with? And when someone does that work for you, I think it's very useful. And I've heard so many people say, oh, I cooked a whole meal from your, one of your books. And I just chose that sec- th- those, this suggestion of, people, of recipes that work together. And, and it's really, I just find it really useful. So there's a spring chicken, uh, I think there's a spring chicken uh, table where you take, the, the chicken is at the center. You've got all the condiments to work with. Um, yeah, and, and especially especially in a book where the recipes are not are not very complicated, when you want to make a feast, again you're gonna you can cook four or five things without spending two days in the kitchen. Uh, so that's the that's the idea behind behind those suggestions. Um, now you're also quoted, uh, I think, in 2017 in an article in the Independent. You're quoted as saying you found British food to be incomprehensible. What did you mean <laughs> by that? And considering British cuisine was also transported to Australia in 1788, <laughs> can you then apply that statement to Australia? Or would for, you apply that to Australia? For, I'll start by saying that I don't remember having ever said that. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I don't remember, but I'm try, I, I will try to figure out what I may have meant when I said that. Um, so I think incomprehensible, probably what, stood behi- what stands behind that is that when I... At, at this particular point in time, when I arrived in the UK, which was in the middle of the 1990s, British cuisine was not as celebrated and as an as an un- understood as, as it is now. And Indian cuisine was kind of incorporated into the se- essence of in of British cooking. And and it has nobody was it, it hasn't had the clarity of voice as it has now. When you go to a, a gastropub or, or that serves traditional British food you know exactly what you're going to get and there's good examples and bad examples like with any cuisine and I knew what it means and I think now and it's true about many cuisines I think it's also true about Israeli cooking if you look at Israeli food 20 years ago it was just a bunch of people cooking the foods of their original backgrounds without it coming into becoming into one thing as opposed to the Palestinian cooking just next door which was a tradition that has had time to evolve over a long time so I think I know what British cooking stands for now, and I think it's actually getting very good, and it it also embraces all sorts of influences in a really interesting way. But Australian cooking, in the British sense, I've never been exposed to that because I know it exists. I've read about it, but I've always had the most incredible fusion food that has had insp- has had its inspiration from Greece or Lebanon or China. Or other, or or Indonesia, or other places where immigrants come to Australia. So for me, Australian food is all that kind of vibrant, exciting foods of the of, of immigrants. I think you have to go back a few decades, really, to 
to find what I was talking about. But there was a time when you know what we ate was based on uh, very much on the sheep's back. So we ate mutton a lot. Yeah. Um, and thankfully, it's changed a lot since then. Have, have you had any really outstanding uh, experiences with Australian cuisine or indeed Australian produce? Oh, I've had. So I've been coming to Australia. Um, this is, I don't know, my fourth or fifth visit since uh, I think it's about a decade that I've been visiting Australia. And I have had the most incredible food. And I've actually been following Australian cookery writers. Like I've got Maggie Beer and I've got mm-hmm. Stephanie Alexander and I've got a few Australian cl- classics on my bookshelf. And I think what has happened here is very much mirrored in my in my journey, where uh, pe- there is it has evolved from from a certain po- from a certain point into another point based on so many influences, both of, of go- good ingredients and immigration. And you see the same happening in California. So, I think Australian cooking is is marvelous, and I've kind of I'm shocked every time I go to. I come to Sydney or to Melbourne or to any other big city. I, I haven't been to smaller places, and see how incredible uh, the f- foods of the different immigration immigrants is fused together. Incredible. Yotamote Lengi, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. Simple by Yotamote Lengi is published by Penguin Random House and is available at GoodReadingMagazine.com.au and all good bookstores. My name is Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. <laughs>